0: good morning good afternoon good evening you are listening to notion capital podcast fm the voice of european enterprise tech next up is our show go to market heroes with andy and his amazing guests and talking of being a hero, I, I don't be a hero and we're back we are back welcome back to the notion capital podcast i am paul papadimitri your show host at large and I said, we are back. But actually, unless Stephen uses a vocoder, it's not his voice you're going to hear in this season. Yes, it's time for a new host. But his voice is familiar. It's someone you've heard in the past. We interviewed him on episode P505, released in November 2020 unbeknownst to him that episode is one of our most popular episodes he ranks at number four in our all-time rankings of most listens episode so it was only evident we needed to give him his own show he's the king of 80s pop music he curates a museum of old computers at his home he's an operating partner at notion capital please welcome mr andy lever hi andy whoa what a build-up.
1: <laughs> i like that by the way paul you say your name so fast yeah i barely catch your surname
0: because my surname is too complicated, so I, I usually just say, just call me Paul. It's a great uh, last name, Papa Papadimitriou, it's a great last name for SEO on Google. If you Google me, you'll find me, but then nobody can actually write it correctly, so nobody can find me. They just can hear my voice anyway. <laughs> so, Andy, uh, first of all, congrats on being top four for uh, most listened episode. You're closing in on number three, we, we need to work on this. But this is an entirely new season with a new concept. It's called Go-To-Market Heroes. Can you tell us what it is all about and why that title? I
1: can. I can. So, and by the way, we, we got to get on the podium, you know. Yeah. Four is not a medal position.
0: And all the episodes this season need to be in the top
1: 10. Yeah. Clean sweep. <laughs> hey, so this new podcast series, as you say, is Notions, Go-To-Market Heroes. And the whole theme are... Everybody talks a lot about go-to-market, but I want to talk to the people that have really built go-to-market. So these are the people that have been there, done it, have scar tissue, can tell you what works, and also very honest about what doesn't work, and all <laughs> the things that make a successful go-to-market team work. And I'm really pleased for the inaugural show here. The first person we have gone is Jennifer Burrs. Jennifer, Hello. welcome.
2: Hi, thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: Can I do a quick intro for you because I know you'll be all modest and and (laughs) kind of play down. So Jennifer is someone, I'm gonna cherry pick some names from your CV, your resume here. We got Yahoo, we got Bizarre Voice, where I met you. Risk IQ, Mm -hmm. and most recently on Fido, And all of those, I think you played a big part in many of them joining very early, building their go to market and making some tough decisions there. And what I like is you even now still have this deep passion about sales. You're still super passionate about teams and building teams and the whole craft of sales, you know. You don't seem to be war-weary, well, not right now anyway, (laughs) war-weary with the whole thing. So I'm really pleased you could join us and talk us through some of these experiences. So welcome.
2: Thank you. You're right. I love sales. And I sometimes think people don't think of sales as really a profession. They think of it as something that people do, and they don't understand that it's something that genuine true salespeople care deeply about and i know you have the same passion about helping customers and that's really what it's about and I think it's one of the most rewarding parts of a business.
1: Well, that's why we got you on as the first person. Exude that confidence <laughs> and hopefully some lessons to go with it. So, I always love to start with, you know, people's careers are always lots of twists and turns. Some is accident, some is design. So, tell us a little bit about how you got into sales, why sales was a profession and what got you into sales.
2: So, I started off in marketing, graduated university with a degree in marketing and assumed that meant that I was going to work in marketing and I pretty quickly realized that I was creating things for the salespeople and I wanted to be on the front lines. And so I started off working in the movie industry back when VHS was a thing, working for a studio selling VHS and then DVD to big chains in the US and quickly made the leap to digital and software in in 1999. And it was then that I really understood that sales was not flogging something it was really about helping my customers solve a problem and that mindset changed my relationships with my customers because they didn't look at me as just trying to have a quick win they realized that i really cared and i'm very fortunate to have worked for some incredible companies and you know you've been a huge part of this you know with bizarre voice and with onfido companies who have really innovative ways of solving a problem And my customers figured out that I cared about closing the deal, of course, but I cared more about understanding what they needed and helping solve that. And I'm still really good friends with a lot of my customers. I've been in weddings. I still go to brunch with them. Well, not during lockdown, but it's pretty extraordinary. And I mean, what got you into sales? I mean, you've been doing it even longer than me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, (laughs) thank you. I was listening to that. You know, my background is hey, my degree is in microelectronic systems engineering. I thought I was going to be a silicon designer. You know, that was that was kind of where I started. So Really? Yeah, yeah. And I love tech. And I used to see all the salespeople in the front of the room and think, I can do that. Why can't I do that? You know, I, I feel like I've got the skills to do that. Yeah. But, and this is what I was going to ask you, you know, I did do that. And the first few years were like really hard because all of a sudden I realized that, you know, hey, this mix of kind of science and skills in terms of how salespeople sell, you know, of course I felt I could stand in front of a room and chat, but the science behind it of actually making this work was the bit that I didn't get into a little bit later. And that's when it really took off for me. And I'm curious, you know, kind of, how were those early years for you and who invested in you? Who who was the person that kind of said, listen, this is the training you need or these are the skills you need?
2: Yeah, you know, before I answer that, going back to what you say is it's a science. What I love about sales is a blend of art and science, right? Too much art and you have every deal is its own art form and you can't replicate it and everything starts from scratch and too much science and you have a bunch of robots who freak out if something doesn't go exactly to plan. And sales is not for everybody, even though people... Not people, but there's sort of the stigma of, oh, sales, they're coin-operated, they can do it. It actually really is something that you have to learn. And I was very fortunate that I had leaders at Yahoo and leaders at Bizarre Voice, including you, who invested in the training. And it's you know sales isn't rocket science, but it is a science, and there's certain methodologies and structures that you need to put in place to help people grow. And I was very fortunate to be the beneficiary of some amazing training, which I in turn now instill in some of my more junior team members. And it just helps give them that scaffold so they can start putting together a repeatable process, repeatable deals, and we can more easily learn from each other and have this common language.
1: And you, you know, you spent many years as an individual contributor. And now most recently you're, you're in a sales leadership position and you're you're building teams and you're mentoring people and you're training people, you know, which did you enjoy the most? And what was the transition like?
2: <laughs> I enjoyed them both. I think it depends where you are in terms of your, I'm not going to say career, but in terms of what motivates you, because there's often the perception that you go from sales individual contributor to becoming a manager. And that is the career path. And that's not it is a career path. And it is absolutely essential that people realize that being an individual contributor is an extraordinary career path through an entire career. And management isn't for everyone. For me, going into management was because I realized that I found a lot of satisfaction in seeing the coaching that I was doing for my teammates and the mentoring that I was doing for my teammates was almost more enjoyable seeing them do well as a result of something that I suggested. And I, you know, I had had my time in the sun. I'd had my, you know, my trips to club and my glory days and such. But for me, it was just a shift in what was important to me. And that's something that I spend a lot of time with my own teams who start off interviewing and saying, but I really want to go into management. And when I ask why, it's because that's the next step in their career. And so I think it's really critical to realize that individual contributor is a way less stressful your time is your own it's oftentimes more money and it's just a different path as opposed to the path but i've i've been fortunate i've had great leaders who were able to to show me what you know what to do and not to suck up but you were one of them i've also had terrible leaders and i've learned just as much from that about what not to do and how not to engage or what frustrated me and i think you can learn something from every experience
1: I was waiting then to appear on both of those lists, by the way.
2: <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 When I worked for you, I was an individual contributor at that point. Let me turn this on you. What did you ever turn around and say, gosh, I wish I could be an individual contributor because <laughs> they sort of have the life.
1: Well, every time I signed off the commission slips at the end of the quarter, I'd look at them and think, <laughs> wow, I, I wish I'd done that deal. I'll give you kind of a, some quick thoughts on this, you know, because this is more about you than me. but. I think back in the day, sales was a, a very much a defined discipline with skills, and a lot of organizations invested heavily in this. And I'm thinking back to the days where IBM and HP and EDS and all these big companies would really, really invest because one, because they obviously want to sell things, but two, they felt that these people were their ambassadors. They're out there talking about their brand and they represented them in the market. So they wanted them to absolutely get it right, you know, all the way from kind of IBM forwards. I don't think much of that exists anymore. And I actually genuinely think a lot of this is down to just good leadership now, you know, to to bring on that next generation of salespeople. And that's why I'm kind of curious, you know, as you move into leadership, kind of how you think about developing sales teams, because I think there's a lot of self-taught salespeople out there right now. So there is a lot of art, i.e. I think I've got skills and a little bit less of the science, you know, And, and that's kind of how I think it is a little bit at the moment.
2: You know, it's interesting that you say that. I do think that the, the huge organizations, the HP, Oracle, IBM, they do invest in formal training programs, but that's not accessible to startups who oftentimes need really strong sales talent, but don't need a senior enterprise expensive salesperson when they're just starting out. And so how do you balance needing somebody with great sales skills but who isn't comfortable going into a startup environment where you don't have all of the infrastructure and the collateral and the processes in place that they're used to having in order to thrive. And that, that's something that I wrestled with quite a bit in terms of starting up sales teams, having to kind of almost brute force some of the training. Some of it was bringing in colleagues that I'd worked with in the past who I thought had a lot to share. Some of it was buddying them up, you know, with some mentors or bringing in training that maybe I couldn't afford the big, massive training programs, but figuring out, because I do believe you have to invest in training. And some of it I can do, but some of it is better coming from people who are specifically skilled at the training aspect of it. And then I can reinforce and coach and such. And I mean... Notion invests kind of goes a range of very early startups to more scale ups. Do you, do you see a difference in terms of the training and the sales abilities in those organizations?
1: Yeah. And that, that kind of leads into, I think people listening to this will be probably founders or early stage employees at kind of series A, series B, or maybe even late seed companies, you know. One of the biggest investments they'll make once they get to product market fit is their sales team. And they want to get to, as we call it, go to market fit. You know, how can I have a replicable, repeatable sales process where I know that if I do certain things, then good things happen. Yeah. I, the product's ready to go. And I was going to ask you, you know, now that you've seen companies through various stages, any tips as to who to hire for that first job, what to look out for, the sort of person that you think will be successful? Because I also see churn in that job as well. You know, people... Mm -hmm. Not because they failed, but maybe the organization has hired the wrong person or they're just not ready for them. Various
0: reasons.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, I've, I've spoken with some founders who want the really big hitters initially. They want to get somebody in who's used to doing the big, huge deals. And quite frankly, those people probably will churn pretty quickly at the start because you almost need somebody hungry and willing to sort of put in the hours it's partially figuring out some of the product market fit at that very early stage and understanding the customer's pains that you're trying to solve. It's an understanding, you need somebody with the experience to know that you're not out there selling features. You really do need to go and understand what the customer needs and relate how your solution solves it. Because ultimately, customers care about two things. Can you solve my problem? And are you the best option to solve my problem? They don't care about features. They don't care about any of that. They just care, can you solve the problem? But if you have two experienced enterprise sales reps, they're going to want that proven piece. They're, they're used to doing big, long sales cycles. And, you know, it's interesting. You told me at one point, you know, there were certain companies that you worked for that you said, Jen, you would hate it here. It's just not the kind of sale that you would like. So I think you know what founders really need to understand is what problem are we trying to solve? What do I think the sales cycle is going to be? And add on at least three to three to six months to that. You know, every founder is like, oh, this should maybe be a three-month sales cycle. And it's not, because especially when you're just building that credibility, you need people who are hungry and ambitious and are willing to have the door slammed in their face a lot and be told no a lot. And it's not personal, but that's part of the initial sales is refining the message and refining the fit between what customers need and what the product does.
1: Mm. Hey, I want to explore some little bits of this okay, okay or, or okay. to quote a new americanism which i i seem to have picked up i need to unpack some of this <laughs> oh, gosh. so people traits okay so i remember andy grove's was his biography was called only the paranoid survive yeah you have that trait of paranoia <laughs> yeah like what have i missed what should i be doing who did i not speak to yeah. did we triangulate that data do we know that that's true And you would, you know, you're the person that messages me at three in the morning going, I've just had an idea about this, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't
2: expect you to respond at three. I just wanted to get it off my chest.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll give you an example. Sometimes my heroes in sales, when I've met them, they've actually been very unassuming, kind of just diligent people, you know, who sweat the details and What do you think are the things that make people successful in sales? You know, what are the traits if you're interviewing people? Of course, you want to test them on the science, but what are the attributes in terms of their character you think are good?
2: Yeah. So when I'm interviewing sales reps and I interview for senior reps, I interview for more junior reps. But there's four characteristics that I think are really critical. One is intelligence. And that's, you know, not being able to recite pi to the 18th digit. It's being able to explain sometimes very complex technical solutions in a business value way, but also the emotional intelligence to be able to read the room. We've all had those people who kind of keep going and going and going, and they've completely lost everybody and have no idea. So intelligence is really important, being able to explain things. Integrity, ethics and integrity is really important because they're representing the company and they can go in and lie through their teeth and we'll never get a second chance right and we will burn ourselves with not only that customer but everybody that customer knows and i don't want to micromanage people so i have to give a lot of trust that they're doing the right things that's really important to me a hunger is important because you cannot be lazy in sales that is the one thing this is not a job if you just want to sit back and be lazy because every minute you're doing something is a step forward Every extra phone call, every extra email, every extra piece of proof that you're putting together or business case that you're putting together moves everything forward. And lastly, I need people who are coachable because there's nothing worse than having somebody come in and who knows everything and does it their way. And it turns out that it's not working cohesively with the group and everybody has their own style and I I get that, but I need to know that somebody is coachable and will take feedback. And so those are the things that I think are, are really critical, but part of sales also, and Andy, I remember you going absolutely berserk when something was forecast and it didn't come in, was you know, sweating the details. And you're going to hate me for saying this, but I'm a huge proponent of medic and medpic, which you get so bored of me talking about, but it really is a way to have this common framework to be able to interrogate the details and dig into the details and prove them and re-question them. And that's, I think it's really critical. And whether it's medic or sportsman or champ, or there's tons of different formulas, but to have that qualification, and there was nothing worse than going in and talking to you about a forecast and be like, yes, it's coming in. And then it didn't come in. And you are not a super fun person to deal with when, you know, a deal that I've been promising all quarter didn't come in and was never going to come in. And you knew it. And I knew you were not forecasting it above. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm laughing now because that never happened.
2: No, (laughs) never, that was hypothetical.
1: (laughs) So uh, I think I've seen you implement medic a few times and what I like about medic, so I'll let you describe it, but it feels like it's a methodical way to examine a deal It also lets you incrementally look at how far are we actually advanced in this deal. Yeah. So to really get a better feel, are we in the right stage? Are we forecasting this in the right way? But also it makes it a team sport. Yeah. So it allows you to bring people in who can talk the same language that are not in sales. So, you know, the biggest thing I get from founders is like, oh, I don't understand how salespeople talk. Yeah. But you've trained the kind of extended sales team to come in and talk about these things. So kind of how how did you make that work? What are tips in terms of medic? You know, I mean, you might want to describe quickly what medic is as well.
2: Yeah. I love that you said team sport because sales is such a team sport and nobody ever wins a deal alone. There's nothing worse than somebody who tries to win a deal alone and loses it because they were just too arrogant to bring in the extra person or didn't even know they needed to. But Medic is a framework for sales for qualification of a deal. It's broken out into different parts and it's about being able to really analyze where are we in the deal? What do we know and what don't we know? And what don't we know is oftentimes just as important, and it provides a roadmap of what to do next. And without going through the whole thing, things like, you know, one of the letters E stands for economic buyer. Do we know who's actually signing off on this deal? Because there's nothing worse than having an amazing deal all teed up, and then it goes to the person who has to pay for it, and they've never heard of it, and they don't have the budget, or it's not a priority. And it's really good to know that at the beginning of the deal, as opposed to the day it's supposed to be, you know, the month you're, you're forecasting it. And so it it doesn't really matter what framework you have. It's important to have something. So the whole business has a common language and it really is a team sport. And you taught me this is it's important to know how to orchestrate a deal and who to bring in because product really needs to understand and hear from the customer, you know, what's important or maybe why they didn't buy or why they are buying. It's important for customer success to know what the customer, why they're buying and what they expect to get out of it to be able to focus the resources. And that's the difference between a very junior rep and a more senior rep is being able to orchestrate more complex deals. And when I say orchestrate complex deals, it's who to bring in from your own company and how to navigate across the company that you're selling to and bringing in different parts of the business because you never want one point of contact because if that person, you know, gosh, they have another priority for a few weeks, you're sort of stuck. You want to have lots of different people to help validate that.
1: I want to get onto the go-to-market models in a second, but I do want to talk to you a little bit about managing a sales team, okay? Because you've okay. built teams from scratch. You have then evolved them from kind of those early deals and early adopters through up to the, the larger deals. So you're interviewing. You've interviewed a lot of salespeople. You know, what do you look for and what's the really good questions to kind of unlock what you're looking for? Any tips?
2: Yeah. One of the things that I love to ask is, my favorite question, is tell me about a deal you lost. Because we've all had those deals that we won, that we know and we love to talk about. But I think we learn the most from the deals we lost. And if we're really honest with ourselves, it's the deals that we lost where we know one thing, we just screwed up. There was a, there was a just a doubt that we had at the beginning, or we didn't follow through on something that could have either changed winning the deal or quite frankly, let us know it was never a deal in the first place and we spent six months working on something that was never gonna close. And we sort of mentally had already spent that commission check and it was devastating not to be able to actually spend the commission check. It's interesting the responses and how people respond tells you a lot about them. If they blame the customer, if they just blame pricing, if they just blame everybody else, then quite frankly, I'm not interested. It's the ones who have really insightful, you know what, oh gosh, you know what, I screwed up here. You know what, that person's not going to make that mistake again. Let me ask you a question. This is just for my own curiosity. When you're interviewing sales leaders, what question do you like to ask?
1: I, well, I was about to ask you something that's related to this actually. So I kind of like their mental model for how they organize them okay so there is the sales leader where you say this is the outcome we'd like this year and they look at you in horror and then there's the other sales leader who looks at it and you can see the cogs turning in their head as the breaking down the problem okay how do i break that down what do i need to do and in the sas world today they'll start thinking about Kind of, what's my run rate? And, and there's different models here, but what's my run rate? What's my renewals? How's expansion going to perform? How do I think about net new? What geos do I need? And they just start to kind of peel the onion. It's like organizing the troops, almost. You know, how do I think about that organization? And then how do I measure it as well? And and how do I work with senior management to make sure they're fully appraised of what's going on and what investments do I need? But also, they're very good at bringing in other people. How do I involve product in this? And then how do I work with marketing? And how do I think about? And they're very, very inquisitive, naturally inquisitive, and also have just great collaboration skills. And to your point, there are people that people want to work with just because They want to work with them. They've got that magnetic effect. And then there are people that just have to demand that people work with them. And they're less successful in my view, you know. So I like the people that people say, I just like working with them, you know. And that goes all the way up through, I think, your career. Very successful individual contributors also have this amazing ability of corralling people, but not telling them they have Mm -hmm. to do this, but just bring them into the team. And and people like to work with winners, you know, and I always have this saying, you know, winning solves a lot of problems.
2: (laughs) It also disguises a lot of problems.
1: It does. One week you've got a sales team that's very flat, then you have a big win. The next team, everyone's got the energy again. It drives them forward, you know. And I think using that to drive teams forward is really, really important. But just to finish kind of this thread then, how do you run successful sales meetings as a leader? You know, I'm curious, what are the things you want the sales students tell you, or you want to tell them, or how you want to get senior management involved? What's the recipe for a good drumbeat of sales meetings?
2: So sales meetings are interesting. And one of the things that I always hated about sales meetings is where they were a waste of time, or people felt they needed to have a meeting to have a meeting. And so for me, what I always wanted to do is make sure everybody was involved. So we would pick deals, like one deal per rep, and go through on MedPick and really analyze where we were And what I love is having their colleagues question them. And it's, we all agree, egos stay out of the room, but having colleagues, sometimes when you ask the questions and you're doing the interrogating, it sparks something in your own mind about, Ooh, I don't actually know this about my own deal. It's important to have people professionally own their deals where they're going to come in and not just sort of be wishy-washy. There needs to be a sense of, I own this. One of the things that's also really important is having those one on ones with your team where not only are you analyzing the current deals that are in play, but the pipeline building and sort of the really early stage just to sort of start having your finger on the pulse of what's coming down the line, or what are they doing to drive that pipeline, because it's really easy to spend time focusing on what I'm working on now. But as soon as that pipeline runs dry, then that rep is gasping for oxygen. And part of a good leader is making sure that you're constantly driving that pipeline build and thinking about how to get more in the funnel. And yes, that's part of an SDR's role. And yes, that's part of marketing. But ultimately, it comes down to the AE. And there's nothing worse than an AE who just sits there and blames everybody else when, quite frankly, they could have been doing a lot too. So it's it's keeping an eye on the current quarter, but then looking forward as well, and knowing and, and that's, that's sometimes those one-on-ones are even more impactful because at some point you don't want to necessarily just sit around and listen to somebody doing a forecast you know I don't want to spend an hour listening to other people do forecasts if it's not driving something for me because as an individual contributor I could have spent that time on the phones or doing something else
1: hey let's turn to go to market models you've seen markets grow and mature and I think the way investors want results to go the way that leadership, want results to go the way the salespeople are going, you know, things change. And now obviously we've gone through the iterations of kind of the on-prem through e-commerce, through SaaS, now to cloud. And then now we're in this world where the next generation of cloud where it's cloud everywhere, you know, and I think your kind of home compute and your business compute are all kind of merging and expectations have changed. And you've got to sell into that. Yeah, you've got to make sense Mm -hmm. of all of this. So it just wonder if you've got any kind of anecdotal stories and maybe recent experiences of how you've started with go-to-market models, just how you package, how you price, how you present to customers, how that's matured and things that have made that change as we've grown into the market that we've got today.
2: I think it depends on the stage of company that you're in and what you're selling. And so there needs to be an initial viewpoint of realistically what can we support and have customers be happy. And that oftentimes means starting out with mid-market or starting out with maybe not selling into the Fortune 100 because you can't necessarily support it and the whole company will be consumed with creating a bunch of bespoke features. I think it's a matter of taking a realistic look at who is the market. And one of the things that we did at one of my recent companies was we created the top 500 that we knew if we could win these 500, we knew we could then confidently say, like a tick, we've really cleared the table. And of that, we figured who was realistic to go for. And we knew we could not support the tier one companies at that point. And our strategy was to start building up credibility and start building up a reputation by starting a little bit smaller. I think you need to be quite ruthless in knowing who not to go after. And it's really hard to say no. And it depends again on the stage of the company, but sometimes you want to be everything to everybody. But knowing where to focus and not trying to sell on a global basis where you know you can't support companies in a whole nother geo yet, it's important to figure out what constitutes success. And some of that is talking to your investors who invested in you for a reason and have a good idea of what your market is and should be. Some of it is talking to peers and some of it is really just digging in and knowing your market. And that's, that's a huge educational piece that any sales leader needs to do is understand the market first and the potential market. How you structure a team, you need different levels of experience for different types of sales. The more quick transactional deals that are faster that you close a lot of them, they're not as complex. They're important. But they're just not as complex. You don't need as sophisticated a sales rep. And quite frankly, a very sophisticated sales rep isn't going to be happy closing those anyways. As you grow and as you have more complex deals that need more orchestration and have lots of moving parts and are with companies that have a more sophisticated buying department, you know, as as you know, some of these, some of these big companies, their, their procurement departments are kind of, they can get the best of almost anybody. You need a more sophisticated sales rep who knows how to handle that and work with that and doesn't just, you know, fall over because those procurement departments, their job is to get the best deal and the best value for their customer. And that doesn't always mean the cheapest price. It means the best deal overall for the company. And once you really understand that, you can work with the procurement team as you don't look at them as an enemy. And so it's, it's, important, to, it's important to have sophisticated reps who understand that a good procurement department from their customer side wants to get the best value for their company. It doesn't necessarily mean the cheapest deal. It means overall the best value, which encompasses a lot, encompasses not only the product, but the service and the support and the ongoing relationship.
1: Mm. You've worked in e-commerce. You have sold to cyber. you worked in fintech, regtech as well.
2: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> which did you enjoy? Which was the one that you thought, I like selling to that persona?
2: You know, for me, and this is going to sound really bad, but I don't actually care what I'm selling. I care that I am solving a big problem in a way that's unique. I do know for me, I prefer selling something that's going to help drive business for my customer, as opposed to reducing risk, for example, which is more of the cyber side of things or cutting costs. And there's ultimately three key things, right? There's either make money, you know, save money or reduce risk. For me, I enjoy helping customers by showing how they can make more money or drive sales. So interestingly in the fintech and the reg tech space, that's all about helping onboard more customers and, and such. So for me that, that resonated the most, but I think it's really important that ultimately for me, the type of company that I'm working for isn't just selling a commodity, but it's selling something that almost requires a bit of an evangelical sale. I, I almost need to feel like I'm on a bit of a crusade where I know what I'm going to be, what I'm offering is going to make such a difference for you that you can tell me, no, that's fine. Eventually you're going to say yes. (laughs) Um, I have to feel passionate enough about the solution and it can be a really on paper, extraordinarily boring solution, but if it makes a big difference to the customer, that's what I care about. What does, I mean, what does notion look
1: for? I, I think, um, When you start, I think you are doing often a TCO, a total cost of ownership type sale. Look, I've got something faster, better, cheaper than you've got already, yeah? Uh For an established market. And they'll look at it and go, you know, it was like on-prem versus cloud, you know? Hey, this is way more convenient. It's cheaper in the long run, and it's just faster to deploy. So it makes sense, yeah? Yeah. But then the question was, was well, when do you flip from a TCO to a value-based sell? When am I actually creating value that the customer goes, oh, and there's all this upside value. And, you know, there's hard savings that the CFOs love, and there's the softer savings that kind of get proved over time. And when we're in this up-for-reelection-every-year SaaS world, those soft savings typically are the ones that they go, we just didn't realize what we're going to get from this. You know, all these side effects that come from this solution and I hear it time and time again. And what I like is where people go, you know, we just got told we were too cheap. Or we got told that, hey, you could charge 10x this and we still would carry on using you. We call it stickiness, but it's more than that. It's how you become a part of the fabric of their business. And they go, how did we ever survive without you? And I always like to say to people like, um, especially in open source, this is great, where you say, what are those five tools that you could live without? And it's amazing the answers you get, and the reasons why that always kind of pique my interest as to how you become that invaluable part of their business that you thought, how can we not live with this anymore? What's our pain threshold in terms of the propensity to pay for this? That's the stuff that kind of gets me excited because you know then that good things are happening with that solution.
2: That's why it's so important to have really happy customers at the beginning because they will testify to that and they will serve as references. And it's really hard initially sometimes to prove that when you're just getting started, but don't kid yourself. Buyers are talking to other buyers. They're not just talking to the, to the sales reps. And this is why they want references. And oftentimes they'll ask for references and they'll call other people who you don't give as a formal reference to find out. And it's it's almost like you want to become part of the plumbing, right? Where it becomes so essential that plumbing sounds really boring, but anybody who's ever had to change pipes knows that it's it's an absolute nightmare. And it's the tangible benefits are what helps close the deal, the intangible, as you talked about, the ones that you can't necessarily prove out at the beginning is why it's also really important to invest in a good customer success team who are going to, once you close the deal, then the real work begins, right? It's about the implementation and constantly delighting a customer because there will always be a competitor knocking on the door and whether or not the answer comes down to what kind of experience they have. And a lot of times people get super excited about closing the deal And then forget about how important it is afterwards to make sure that customer constantly feels that the company is working on their behalf.
1: Hey, you know sales really well. It's your career. I'm gonna do some rapid fire with you, okay? Uh, And just see what what you think. And by the way, there's no right and wrong answers to these. I'm just interested in your view, okay? Do you mind if we do that? Okay. All right. The sales development reps, SDRs, should they report to marketing or should they report to sales?
2: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know I, I've seen it work really well both. I like it reporting into sales because then you can have a much more cohesive relationship between the account executive and the SDR where they can really strategize and the AE can also help mentor the SDR because that tends to be the career path for SDRs where they're also helping to drive who I'm going after and why. You know, marketing has slightly different goals. In a perfect world, marketing and sales reports up into the same C-level exec
1: the mix of compensation for sales 50 50 or something different
2: 50 50 but make sure there's heavy acceleration for overperformance. and the compensation structure will drive behavior and any good individual contributor any good individual contributor will tear apart that comp plan and figure out exactly how to structure deals to make the most money so you need to think about how to gain
1: it i completely agree so last one <laughs> Should salespeople do new business and renewals or should you split them?
2: I think salespeople should have a piece in renewals partially because the last thing you want is for them to close a really crappy deal and kick it over the fence and then that client feels completely abandoned. I think they should be a part of that ongoing just so you know, they don't have to do the whole thing. I think a great client success or customer success team can work on those renewals, but I do think the original rep should be a part of it, partially because oftentimes you can do a lot of upselling and cross-selling at that point. And you know, one of the things when you're looking at churn, it's not just does the customer go away, but are they spending less? And it's really hard to upsell an unhappy customer, but having a good deal, well-structured, from the beginning it makes it much easier to have that great relationship all along
1: yeah and as an investor by the way the cac the customer acquisition cost in SaaS is is important yeah we so we want sales to earn earn their money but you you want i think payback in anything less than 12 months or even nine months is good lifetime value is really important of course you know how often can you renew what net dollar retention do you get so is there an uptick in pricing as we talked mm-hmm. about and those ratios are often an indicator of one we have something that's resonating in the market, but two is how good is go to market working? Yeah. How efficient is it in the market? So, thank you for all of that. Last question then. Okay. Who do you look at, past or present, that's kind of been an influence? You have Maya, company, person, you know, what do you look at and say, wow, well, they're inspirational?
2: You know, I don't think there's necessarily one person that encompasses everything. I look at a lot of different people for what they've brought who have individual characteristics that I really admire. So there's Francoise Brouwer, who has a great history of Google and Pinterest. I really admire her for not only what she has done on a commercial side and operational side, but the fact that she stood up when things weren't good at a company and stood up for herself. I look at somebody like Whitney Wolf, who everybody said, no, you can't do this. And she believes in herself and took a company public. You know, I look at people like you who you know had this career, who, went, who realized that your, your strengths, even though you started in IT and on the engineering side, realized that sales was a really valid career path. I think it's really important to understand what matters to you. And so for me, I know when I look at a company, and I don't have a particular company that I know I want to work for. I know the type of culture that I want to work for. And I think that's really critical. Culture is a big word that everybody talks about. And I think you need to understand what culture means and culture is not a pool table and culture is not a foosball table. Culture is a company that's ambitious, that wants to achieve great things, that understands that employees are also people, has a little bit of fun with things. If I'm going to be sending eight, nine, 10, 12 hours a day working for a company, I want to know that they actually recognize that I'm a person, have a little bit of fun with it and reward achievements. That's not necessarily just from a financial perspective, but from an overall support, a company that invests in the training and learning and development. And I think there's there's a generational difference as well, whereas my more younger teammates would join and then within six months, ask me about their promotion. And I'm sort of thinking, gosh, <laughs> congratulations on I'm glad that you feel so great about yourself, but let's let's get to a year and see where you are. But I think it's important that a company thinks about a career path, not just for the more junior reps, but for their more senior employees as well. And sometimes that gets overlooked because they're brought in at a senior level. But senior people want to grow and learn and be challenged as well.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, when I reflect on my career, I think you look back and of course you remember if you made a little bit of money because it may have helped some of your life choices. You remember the people you work with because... They're the people that you spend a lot of time with. Uh, you know, you spend a lot of time with the people you work with besides the people at home. But most of all, you remember how they made you feel, both the company and, and those people. You know, those are the memories that you've got when you get back to people. It's like, do you remember when? You know, those are, the, those are the things that kind of drive great company cultures, that sense of togetherness and being a team, I think, genuinely. Not being divisive, being inclusive, but also... Just to finish on the kind of sales theme is people felt that they were pushed, but they felt that they gained from that as well. You know, and I don't think ever, in my career and maybe in your career, have you ever been given a quote and looked at it and got that's so easily achievable? <laughs>
2: never <laughs> and if I did I would I would still be like wow that's hard <laughs> I
0: mean, especially not from you Andy especially not from you <laughs> um, hey well I think that's covered a lot of ground
1: there I knew you'd be a great person to have on first to kind of set the scene so I really appreciate you sharing Jennifer and and no, telling thanks. us about your experiences did you enjoy yourself
2: you. I did. It's always great to talk to you. It's, it's always fun.
1: Good. Well, thank you so much. And we'll hopefully have you back on soon to to take it to the next level of, of sales preparedness. But thank you again, uh, Jennifer. I, I
2: would love to. Bye-bye.